0: We often think if we want to do, if we want to be more successful or get more done, we have to do more, know more, learn more, act more, do it faster, do it bigger, do it better. It's not. It's completely the opposite.
1: Hello, I am Joel Ingram, and this is Crisis to Crushing in podcast. Let's dive into this week's talk, and I'll help to increase perspective, expand perception, and allow you to change your reality. Enjoy the show. So today on the show, I have uh, Matt Caulfield, uh, who was my trainer, uh, coach, mentor, uh, and generally a tiny guy, actually. Uh, (laughs) Matt, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Joel.
1: No worries, no worries. Uh, Would you like to give you a a little bit of an introduction for yourself, please?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I I do quite a few bits and bobs, but the, the main area I work in, I think, which... Would most with resident anniversary listeners, I'm an NLP trainer, so which is how we met because you came on my NLP course. Um, I don't know if you had any. I a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Any NLPers <laughs> on your podcast yet? Uh, one, but he's not.
1: He's not full into NLP. He's got right. a, it's part of his toolbox.
0: Uh, So I don't want to I don't want to waffle on for ages about something that your listeners already because because as you know Joel the great thing about NLP is and the downside of NLP is you speak to every single NLPer and every single NLP will give you a different definition about what NLP actually is which is brilliant but I can imagine infuriating people who are interested in it because you don't know where to go but anyway so I'm an NLP trainer and a a coach Um, I've been doing NLP training since two thousand and three. Under my trainer training with Richard Bandler, so what's that? Sixteen years now. Um, I, uh, I'm also a, what what would rather pretentiously called a high performance coach, uh, which always sounds quite pretentious, but it doesn't really mean that. It just means you work with a certain set of people that tend to be considered the people who are performing well and want to perform better. Because um, as you know, coaching tends to be generative, whereas counselling is remedial. Although anyone that knows anything about counselling knows that that line is very very blurred indeed. Um, Um, And you need some sort of counseling or or, or skills if you're a coach, otherwise, it all goes pear shaped. So, I've been doing that since 2000, so what's that coming up 19 years now? Blimey, that's a long time. Um, On top of that, I teach martial arts. So, in fact, oh, Christ on a bike. Go away. How do I stop them from doing that? (laughs) That's fine. Where was I?
1: You were just telling us how you were getting into... Yeah,
0: you can leave that in, aren't you? You leave that in. <laughs> my parents FaceTime, me. that's what it was. <laughs> I'm, 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 I, am, I am that, that's, what, what is it, the FD called us, that, that squashed middle. I've got young kids and old parents. And I think, just, I say I'm a high-performance coach and I'm not. I'm not. I'm a bloody child-rearer and a parent character if it's not my children going, Danny, 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 can you help me with this? is my mum and dad going, Matthew, Matthew, can you help me with it? Don't leave that in. Do not leave <laughs> Too late. <laughs> um so yeah, so I'm a high performance coach. On top of the high performance hang on, we're going seamlessly, shall we? On top of the high performance coaching, the um the other thing I do, which is I realized on Monday, which is the twenty second of April, um when we are recording this, uh It was, I've been a a Thai boxing instructor for 20 years. That's when I got my Thai boxing qualification. But I've been doing martial arts for 30 years now. I started when I was 12, so 31 years actually. So I started when I was 12. I also, um, I've been involved in Buddhism, particularly Zen Buddhism since 1995. So I was well ahead of the current mindfulness curve and trend for making everything mindful that you can um books you know it was days before you had my a section in um in uh you know waterstones whatever it was so yeah so so those are sort of the areas i work in but at, you know at the moment to be perfectly honest with you Joel as you know i'm mainly a start-home dad which is you know uh i thought i was good at productivity and managing my own state and persuasion skills then i had children then i realized how bad i truly was at it
1: <laughs> yeah it's a bit of an eye in children Yeah, because yours are quite
0: a bit older than mine, so you're you're well ahead of me in this. Yeah. Yeah. Dougie's four, so he's just going through that Y daddy stage. um, Felicity's two, which is the best age, isn't it? Because she's like a tiny drunk. It's like living (laughs) in a house with a tiny drunk, it's fantastic. She just like walks into things and giggles and throws up and stuff, and it's just fantastic. (laughs) Dougie's four now, is he? Yeah, he's four. He was four back in March, so yeah, so he's there. yeah he's in the um because when did you when did you train with me it was you would yeah it was
1: two uh th- i think it was three years ago so I'm he's either Dougie or Dougette was on her way yeah uh, Dougette wasn't
0: it way, yes i remember because it'd be it was all parents on the course wasn't it apart from that, <laughs> one, that. so we all bonded about being parents and you <laughs> was a bit like what what's going on <laughs> I, I have no children i have no frame of reference for chat <laughs> yeah. Yeah is <laughs> when you get like group thinking groups that, that's the thing i love about being an lb trainer is every single group kind of takes on a personality so you, you do sometimes i'll mention their names because some unfair, you do sometimes get awkward groups that they just don't gel and they don't work uh, and you know you might get one or two people that maybe don't quite get it and it you know takes in they, they, they sort of like sucking a lot of your time but 9 times out of 10 people are you know, people choose to come on the course you get a kind of like group think and every single group is, is unique and little things develop at a course is that you would never do like every single practitioner i do even though i have a syllabus i follow i have a structure i follow every single practitioner i do is entirely different and that comes down purely and simply to the people you get on the course and that's what i love so much about it is you just get these random interactions with people and you meet people like yourself you know i I would never have met you if you hadn't chosen to come on my practitioner course. I've met all sorts of people through that. And that is, to me, that is the best thing about it because you just get to interact. And, you know, I fully appreciate that probably, I I probably don't keep in touch with 80% of the people who I speak to. You know, they come and they do the course, they get what they want, they disappear. Uh, But that 20% you stay in touch and you build that sort of that long-term relationship with them, either professionally or personally, that's absolutely fantastic because you get to see them change and grow and you learn so much from it yourself as well. You know, from you, you, I, I know so many people I would never have met from doing NLP. And that's the thing I love about NLP because it's, it, as you know, it's not a regulated field. Uh, and that has its problems. In fact, I, I was just thinking the other day that we probably shouldn't give certification for an LP, which sounds a stupid thing to say. But by giving someone a practitioner, it creates a pseudo sort of qualification. And mm. uh, because it gives a pseudo qualification, then people then sort of talk about regulation and that sort of thing. Um, but the problem with NLP is, you know, like who was on your course? We had, it was only a very small group, wasn't it? But we had a social worker, uh, uh, you who just wanted to start your own coaching business. Um, that events organiser, the, the guy that did investing, yeah, uh, and did that, like um, property investing and stuff like that. It was all male actually, wasn't it? There wasn't, there was no women on your course randomly. <laughs> Um, which is weird because some it's, it's weird how it works because sometimes you get like 100% women 100% men it just happened to be you just <laughs> say sorry parents hey. I was just getting on a roll then I can't know where <laughs> I was now hey. you know, I, I didn't even finish introducing myself oh my god that's bad isn't it You have all that bit <laughs> what was I talking about I don't know, uh, the events... I don't know, you weren't even listening. I don't know why i You bother. You're not even, even... Events organiser? Oh, all, yes. All men, all women? Oh, yes, it was an all-man all group, so obviously that had a, a thing about it, because obviously he's got a slightly different feel to it. But like I said, you got loads of different people on the course, and that's the thing I absolutely love about an LP, is you will get you know everyone from like the real you know, tie-dye-wearing, crystal-hugging hippies on the one end of the scale, all the way over to the you know the hardcore investing business people on the other side of the scale often on the same course which is absolutely fantastic because they all interact with people they all interact with each other and you see these weird friendships form that you would never imagine i know people who've got together from my courses (laughs) divorced to get together with someone else (laughs) 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 um so people it kind of it brings in that that kind of groupthink and and that and if NLP had been regulated back in the early 70s i wouldn't be doing it now because NLP even though it's not about therapy it began in the therapeutic field so if it'd been regulated in the 70s give some government organisation you know, like in the uk like sitting gills or you know the hpc or someone like that locked it down and said you know this is what NLP is and this is how we regulate it those people would not be on the course and people would never have benefited from it so the lack of regulation in that way is a good thing. But what muddies the water is by giving something that appears to be a qualification to people. Because once you appear to give someone a qualification, obviously the demands are higher for rigor. And you you and I both know, Joel, let's not beat around the bush. There are some idiots who do NLP. You have <laughs> a clue. There are some very, very successful idiots who do NLP who I would not trust with my dog, let alone anyone else, yet they're making mega bucks off it because they're no good at NLP, but what they're very good at is marketing. So this is what you have to be like. And you see online all the time that these companies send us $7 practitioner trainings. So you download the PDFs and do a few bits and bobs. How absurd is that, to be able to get a qualification off the back of it? Because it's it, because we're offering qualification, that then kind of becomes an issue. Whereas if we didn't offer a qualification in NLP, this is just me musing, incidentally, um, then that worry about regulation would almost disappear um so i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but i at the moment i'm with the society of nlp who i choose the society of nlp because they have you you do you do do martial arts i can't remember i did you did so in certain martial arts as i'm sure you and your your listeners are aware particularly if they're into martial arts yeah there's a thing about lineage in martial arts so you know pick tai chi for example um Tai Chi teachers are taught by Tai Chi teachers who are taught by Tai Chi teachers. So I can follow my sort of, Tai Chi experience all the way back to Man Cheng, who is the fellow that, and, and, and you know, sometimes politics get in the way and it's like, you know, there's two, there's two mature students, senior students and both of them want to, you know, be the lineage and all this, so it all gets really petty and childish very, very quickly, because that's what us humans do. But, um, but you can follow the lineage. So I'm so the Society of NLP, I trained, and the reason I picked the Society of NLP is because you trained Richard Bandler who obviously was one of the co-creators of the field. So you've got that direct lineage there, whereas you try and find the lineage of some other NLP trainers, and it gets very muddy very, very quickly. And you start asking the question, is why are you obfuscating your background? Why are you not telling me who you trained with? Why are you not telling me what your qualification is? And it's probably because they've trained with someone who trained with someone who trained with someone who once borrowed a dog off Richard Van pet tortoises, husbands, neighbors, gardener. And that's kind of their connection to the field. Um, so that's why I like the Society of NLP, because even though it's not a government-controlled regulatory body, at least the seal and the certificate has some lineage to it, whereas other qualifying bodies out there, you know, sadly don't. Um, so that's kind of sort of the NLP side of things, really, is, is sort of getting out there and making sense. Because I've said to you that you're my reputation. This isn't the big thing. I'm not I'm not selling snake oil. Uh, I don't want to sell snake oil. I could fill, I could do, you know, the whole uh, fill the room with 50, you know, spend thousands and thousands of pounds on marketing and fill the room with 50 people and get them all hooping and hollering and jumping up and down and walking across hot coals. Well, let's walk across hot coals? Best thing to do with hot coals is to have a barbecue on it. Um, or oh, arrow breaking on the neck. That's the most recent one. Have you seen that one? Or oh, breaking a board. hi ya. Um, and all that sort of stuff. I could do all that, or whip people up, glaze, you know, whip them up and glaze them over, and send them out on their way and charge mega bucks for it. But you guarantee, you, you, you're incredibly disingenuous if you do something like that. You, most people are not going to benefit from it. Most people aren't going to get anything out of it. The, the, the feelings will be very short-lived. You know, they won't. They won't last. And you will end up with probably some very, very disgruntled people who trained with you, or people who go on to try and use those skills who then make a mess of it. And then go, well, who the hell did you train with? You know So my thing is to make sure the quality is high. I appreciate NLP is a very, very, very controversial field. And the only way you're going to get through that controversy is if I personally do the best job I possibly can to communicate it effectively and to train people effectively in the skills. because NLP is probably I've studied a lot of these models, and NLP is one of the closest things that I have seen to that immediate change. You know, we all know people, don't we, that they've, they've smoked for 30 years and overnight they've just quit. Just stopped, boom, that's it, never done it again. And that, that, is the, that is the holy grail of behavioural change, isn't it? If you can work out how people do that and then be able to package it up and, and put it on there. NLP is not complete. It's not 100% perfect, but it's the closest I've seen to some form of methodology that allows you to be able to do that with people. And yes, there are some people who will work with and some people you won't, but that is a really nice, really nice method. And you can see how it's, it's filtered down. know, NLP has been around since the 70s. It's influenced a lot of people, either directly or indirectly. And you've got certain things that have fallen into the mainstream therapeutic field, like CBT, and in particular EMDR, was directly influenced by NLP it's just they don't they don't admit to being directly influenced by NLP because it's controversial because you know I, I, the reason I like NLP is it's controversial it's like a, did you used to watch the TV show Fringe at all yeah yeah. Oh, I love that show and um, that's kind of to me what NLP is it's Fringe it's on you, you're living on the edge you know it, it should be slightly controversial it should sit on the edge it, 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 in many ways it shouldn't be scientifically rigorous does that make sense? Because if you're worried about making it scientifically rigorous, it would remove, in many ways, the power of NLP because it is very much that, you know, move fast and break things and see what happens. And that's why Richard Bandler, I think, for so many years tried to keep such a tight control over it and tried to avoid any form of regulation because he, he was very aware that that would stymie the creativity of NLP and would limit it from going into the areas it works. in. So, so that's, that's why I love it so much. Um, because it's, it's it, you work with people you've, you know you've seen it it makes big differences really quickly if you do it properly
1: yeah yeah cool. yeah a lot, a lot of my the clients I've added have been one hits yeah you know one and gone
0: like yeah, I know it's bad. I I fix people fixed, in inverted commas. I've solved their issue in the twenty minute the session. I did it someone just the other day. Because as you know, I, um, I I work with people who set up their own businesses. Gee, I shouldn't do it because because I, I I don't copy me for goodness sake. I I don't. I, I this guy rang me up to inquire about sessions. I spent a forty five minute conversation with him, discouraging from working with me. <laughs> It was more important, he spent his money on something else and then told him what he should do. In 45, don't actually cut that from the podcast. I get people when you don't want to free advice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so don't, you know, I work with people who are, but I, I do that all the time. I just solve people's issues whilst chatting to them, trying to sell them a session. And they're like, oh, you don't need a session. You just need to do this, don't you? And they go, oh, yeah. It's a guy I trained with Fault completely, a guy called Bob Spore, very, very controversial fellow. Um, he's my Thai boxing instructor, and he's exactly the same. And you know how you, you, you I'm sure you've done this, where you've had mentors through your life, you know, professional life, personal life, people you've known, who you would consider mentors, either officially or unofficially. And they have, um, and things come out of your mouth, and you realise that's not me, that's them talking. <laughs> it's like little phrases you've picked up, or little ways of doing things. And that is all Bob's <laughs> fault, because he's like that. He's totally about helping people. He could be a multi-squidging billionaire if he if he if he if he put his mind to it, but he just doesn't because that's not what he's about. And I've picked up that annoyingly bad habit <laughs> of helping people out. But yeah, late like that's one hit and gone, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, a lot of it. Uh, do you ever find though that when you when you do that, you actually get when when you're being that transparent and that honest, that it you do get people that will stay and will buy in for the longer deal.
0: Yeah, yeah, you you do you get you, because I I think honestly still goes a very long way in this business. I think um, this particularly since the onset of social media. You know, I was I've been doing this back. in Oh, I miss I miss back in the day, you know, sort of two thousand three, two thousand four, where you paid for a very very expensive website because they were because you had to get web designers to do it for you in those days, uh, and then you you do a bit of search engine optimization and get yourself on Google or whatever, and then and that was it. That was essentially your marketing. You might write a blog. Podcasts were just coming in back then, but they weren't big. The podcast didn't really take off until sort of two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. Blogs were just getting big when I started out. They've been around since the nineties, but blogs for sort of general purpose, but they were very techie people were getting. So you might write a blog or something like that. But there was no ability to self-publish so you can write a book there was no no ability to really control your your media output making videos and video courses and audio courses were hideously expensive because you had to go to a studio to record it Or like we're faffing around now on our Mac, you know on our computers it's brilliant you're creating you're creating something useful for people that you can put out there for free because it's not really costing you anything other than your time whereas back in the day you and me doing this we'd have sat in a recording studio burn it to cd it would have cost you hundreds of pounds up front to do it um, but social media has come along and it, it's brilliant because it's low with the barriers of entry absolutely fantastic but again these things always have a flip side it means that any idiot can come in and, and do it and 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 you have to really be able to cut through that crap um, michael breen who i trained with in nlp fantastic guy amazing um, for my moment the best nlp trainer out there and one of the best nlpers out there and coaches. Absolutely fantastic! guy really, really knows his stuff, and you know, I spend most of my life just ripping him off. To be honest, um, he calls most people who work in the self help field cowboys and shit bags, because <laughs> you know, because they are. Most people are cowboys and shit They're they're out to get your money. They're they're they regurgitating the same shite in different ways, and then putting it on Facebook as an advert and talking about their sales funnels. And it's so easy, isn't it, joe When you start, I did it when you started and so you get sucked in by that. And you go, oh, this guy's all over Facebook. He must be amazing. And then you find out he's living in his mom's basement because he's not actually living in his mom. Um, but yeah, anyone can run around their neighbor's house and lean on the, their neighbor's Ferrari and could you take a photograph? You know, you see that all the time. Don't you? Yeah. I love that. Um, Hi, and they're leaning. <laughs> Hi, and I'm all going... You're a Hertz, aren't you? You're a Hertz. You're in a Hertz car park. You just go... Because you and me, we could pop into Cardiff now. We could trawl around St. David's. We'd find a Maserati or a Ferrari. We'll take pictures of each other on it and we can use that as our look how successful I am thing. I believe nothing is on the internet. Nothing. I, I don't believe any of that stuff because it's all too easy to fake nowadays. The problem is, as we've seen with all this fake news nonsense, is it suckers people in. So you've got to cut through Crap, and the only way you can cut through the crap is being as genuine as you possibly can. Yes, I could list at least six people who hate me because I pissed them off. Some of them I deserve, some of them I don't, but you're not going to get everyone to like you. But if you're as genuine as you possibly can and and, and help people as much as you can, I think that is the only way to get people to come back to you. As you say, if you're honest on the phone call, I've had people who have solved their problem and they've wanted to book a session, and I'm like, why? I've solved your problem. (laughs) No, I really want to work with you. <laughs> I fixed it. We're going to have to talk about something else now. You know that? You? <laughs> I, someone, I shouldn't say this. I had someone who booked four sessions for me once. I talked in the first 15 minutes. I was always paid for four sessions now. What am I going to do? So we had to go like real off book to essentially fill those four So You got value out of it, but it wasn't for what he originally wanted. Because what he originally wanted was dead easy to do. I did it in 15 minutes. And that's not me being arrogant, incidentally. It makes me sound really arrogant. Um, but all I'm doing is applying the tools that I've learned. That's all it is. You know, I didn't invent this stuff. So, you know, it's a bit like a plumber being, you know, saying they've fixed a the plumbing problem. Well, all they've done is follow the instructions. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Yeah. That's brilliant. don't be, I'm not dissing plumbers. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> plumbers are fantastic, but it's it, it, there's not an arrogance to that. But I think sometimes there is an arrogance in the personal development field of, look what I can do. I'm amazing, I'm a big shot. And you think, well, all you're doing is following the tools that you've learned. And that's brilliant and fantastic and amazing and you get really good results. But, you know, that arrogance that, it's very easy to get suckered in though, isn't it? I yeah, and
1: yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's, uh, it tends to, they they add it to their, to their ego list.
0: Mm.
2: Mm.
1: And then it becomes how awesome they are rather than, you know, what they can do for other people.
0: The, the big thing if you've, you've hit the nail on the head there and i think the big thing with this is ask someone how something went like a training or a session if they start talking about how they think how it made them feel you know that one game yeah i did an amazing job i i felt really good by the end of it like i think i've told you the story of when i was at some conference i was back carrying like, it wasn't me that was doing it and we were on the side of the stage and there was a guy there on stage talking to the audience and and oh my and the audience was <laughs> like, and now, as a trainer and a coach, we've all been in situations where we have just gone down like a cup of cold sick. You know, I've done once where I've stood there, you know, it's like showing car tricks to dogs. You get no feedback from the audience, you're not getting anywhere. You're bringing out all your big guns, you know, you're just doing anything you can. You start, you know, telling jokes about you know Hitler just to try and get some response or, or something from the audience and then you know you get the dreaded feedback sheets at the end of where it's all like ones and you're like oh. and you know we've all been there where you just cannot connect so me and the guy that I was with we were we were like ready to you know commiserate him there there mate tough audience that sort of thing we've all been there you know you know that camaraderie spirit we're all trainers and to be fair it was quite a tough audience um and then he came off and he, yeah killed it and I was like Okay. So being an NLP and doing coaching and stuff, the first thing I asked him to do was what, Joel? What was the first question I asked him? You said he killed it. I said... How would you know? Exactly. (laughs) You know you killed it. You start up at 10. Everyone knows that. How would you know you killed it? And he said it went exactly the way I wanted to do it in my head. So he'd gone on stage and he was not looking at the audience. He was not using any external feedback whatsoever. He was purely and simply, this is how I imagined it going in my head. This is how I imagine speaking. This is how I imagine standing. This is how I imagined doing it. And he was feeding back to that. He was all internal feeding back to his internal representational systems, all internal, all internal, all internal. He could have been doing it to an empty room and he said he would have killed it. You know, and that is someone who bless him, not very good at what he does because he's not getting any external feedback. When you're doing that sort of thing, as you know, you are the least important person in the room at that moment in time, the least important person. What you think or do or behave, or how you go in, how you feel is irrelevant. I've done trainings where I felt really good and got really bad feedback. I've got trainings where I thought, oh God, that was awful. I felt really bad and I've got really good feedback from it because I've got you know, good, in fact, in fact, the one thing I would say about me training is only personal. If I'm too relaxed, I do a bad job. I need to have that slight edge of nerves because it keeps me on my toes. Um, if I'm too relaxed. And I go in too easy going. I get too relaxed, too pally, too friendly, not professional enough. And that's when you know, you know, I'm just losing the audience. I've got no respect or, you know, um, um they're not paying any attention to me. Whereas I've got to have that slight nerves, just keep on. That's just me. You know, everyone's, everyone's different. Um, but yeah, so like you say, it's, uh, you've just got to pay attention to these people and see what they're doing. And it, it, it is about then getting people to come. Anyway, I, it, anyway, that's my introduction. That's who I am.
1: That's, you, you touched on a good one here, actually, which was uh, uh, internal feedback. Yeah. So th- th- this, this show originally was geared around uh, the midlife crisis, but it's yeah. now more geared around people implementing change and understanding the stories they tell themselves and the things they do that keep them restrained in life.
0: I, I hate to break the magic to you, Joe, but that's what everyone does in this field. You're just doing it to a specific. <laughs> <laughs> There's all the bad stories we tell and how we great changes. You're aiming at people who are uh, people of a certain age, like you and I. <laughs> I'm I'm older than you. I'm you well are. older than you. No, I am really. It was I? your birthday last week, wasn't it? Yeah, More forty-three. Was it forty-three?
2: Yeah, I was forty-three in January. Oh. Ah, yeah, I thought I thought you were like With a snapper. Uh.
0: <laughs> I thought you were like 35 or something. Thank
2: you. This
0: for my useful, useful good looks and totally <laughs> like Uh I didn't realize that. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm only 35. I've been doing this for 20, 20 odd years. I started when I was like 14. That'd be quite. But, but yeah. you, you were young, and
2: yeah.
1: that goes back to another story you mentioned earlier on about being into Zen Buddhism at the young age. What? How did how did Matt get to the point where he was interested in that type of thing? Because I'm guessing you were pretty young.
0: Yeah. Um, you, want, you want the honest answer? Yeah. Bruce Lee. <laughs> ah. <laughs> okay. Every, every teenage boy goes through the Bruce Lee phase, don't they? Where you meant all the Bruce Lee movies from the video shop. It's yeah. just I kind of followed it on by then taking up martial arts when I was 12. Um, but actually, so, but sort of 12 through to sort of 17, 18, I kind of was interested in the Oriental stuff. So, but, but what I found about myself, is I, I have quite a, an annoyingly inquiring mind. Everyone's slightly different. So I've always been sort of slightly questioning. And it's because I've always sort of... This is a bit of a weird, weird admission. Um, but you might find this hard to believe. But when I was very younger, I didn't have a lot of social skills. I wasn't wasn't really very good. I didn't really get on with people. I didn't really know. the. I, I thought I, I missed the induction. Does that make sense? You know, someone didn't me a handbook. When I went to school, all the kids would break into little groups and we'll get on and I kind of stand there going... I don't know, I, I, how do they? How were they doing that? And 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 I was kind of stand there as a bit like I, I've missed something. Did I miss the induction? Did I did, did, did my parents not give me the handbook? What are these social skills of people? Need? But because of that, I kind of became observing, and also I became quite imaginative because I spent a lot of time in my own head. So I was always sort of like inquiring and imaginative and paying attention. So I always asked these like, slightly awkward questions. And um, uh, but. The, the the buddhist thing even i was interested in it because of bruce lee and it was a, I was interested in it in that sort of like romantic eastern mysticism kind of way you know because yeast mm-hmm. is far away then it's kind of you know romantic and mystic in, in the distance um but it was actually a chance encounter in cheltenham uh, of all places i was with an ex-girlfriend of mine and we'd gone to visit her friend who was at the university in cheltenham and i was sat in a pub or a club or something with this guy, very friendly guy, and I was waffling onto him, I'd, I'd had a bit to drink, and I was waffling onto this guy about, wow, what it is, man, what I think it is, what I've noticed is, is the fact that, you know, it's because we're all obsessed with stuff, aren't we? And we get hold of all this stuff, and we cling to it, and we, we're obsessed with keeping hold of it, but really that stuff, it just breaks and falls apart, and then we get upset, so we're better off just not clinging to it in the first place. And he went, oh, I wasn't aware you were a Buddhist. And I was like, you what? And he went, well, you just said the first noble truth. You know, the first, the first, you know, there's four noble truths in Buddhism. You know, the fact that, you know, um, life is suffering and life is suffering because we cling essentially to things and, and, and that things are impermanent. So when things go away, we still continue to cling to them. And that's, you know, of um, because I'm doing a really bad job of describing the four noble truths. I mean, Buddhists listen to this, going, what I meant. Um, and, and and he happened to be an ex-monk of what was known, what used to be known as the Western Buddhist Order, which was set up by Sangharachita in Birmingham. Uh, they're now known as the Tritiana Fellowship. Um, and they have their sort of like secular sort of uh, layperson It's called the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. So he in- invited me to a few meetings and I, I was just found it absolutely fascinating in meditation, but I actually slightly fell out with the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. Um, they threw me out, to be fair. Um, it's quite hard to get thrown out of a Buddhist organisation. Um, and It, did, it just didn't sit with me. Other people have found it worked really well for them, but it didn't didn't sit with me. So, and that was nineteen ninety five. So I was nineteen, and it was, and then so for I probably sat with them for three or four years, and then I got involved in a few other the schools. Um, did some things by myself, and then again to another chance meeting, because these are always chance meetings, aren't they? I met a guy called Jeremy, who's a very very cool. Well, I met him in ninety eight actually. But he set, he he ran something known as the Smiling Mountain Zen Meditation Group, which was associated with Oxford Zen. So then I sat with Oxford Zen for about five or six years. But since I've moved down to South Wales, it's, there's not a lot of Zen around here. So I've kind of been doing my own thing. But yeah, but but, but going back to the NLP thing, there's, there's a lot of, one of the things that fascinated me with NLP, because I got into NLP, you know, what, three or four years after I got into Buddhism, is there's a lot of their model of the world, the map of the world, there's actually quite quite a lot of similarities there between you know, sort of the way we think about things, um, particularly the mindfulness side of stuff, which is all very big in Zen, and the submodality work in MLP. You know, if you read Charlotte Jojo Beck's book, Everyday Zen, she talks about when you're being mindful, you sit in meditation and you observe the thoughts and the feelings that you're having, and you observe whether they have a shape, whether they have a colour, whether they have, and I was reading again, this is all modalities. this is also modality work. You know, the, the, the stuff of, you know, how you deal with anger and fear and confidence and motivation all those other things is you don't pay attention to the content of the experience, you pay attention to the structure of the experience. And often just by paying attention to the structure of the experience, where the feeling sensation is in your body, don't label it as fear, anger, sadness, whatever it is, just pay attention to physical sensations. Well, that's all kinesthetic some modalities. Um, now, in NLP, that takes it one step further and starts to manipulate them and change them to see what's different. But if you just take it purely as observing the submodalities of your experience, that lessens the attachment. Going back to you know so the the noble truth, the attachment to that thought or feeling, and it's the attachment to that that affects us because it's it's the the, the thought or the feeling, the emotion. We're human; that's what happens. But just is getting sucked into it, you know, being, being fully associated, to use the NLP term, that's what makes the problem because then you, you know, and, and then the thing that a lot of people miss about this is you can't just choose to fully associate to the good stuff and disassociate to the bad stuff. It doesn't work like that. You know, this is where mind. this is where people get wrong with mindfulness. They think mindfulness will get rid of their bad feelings. Yeah. It will get rid of your good feelings as well. This is, this is the thing because otherwise you're not doing it. Otherwise you're not, you're not doing it. But I did, I tried mindfulness. It didn't work. Well, did you try being mindful of good feelings as well as bad feelings? But why did I try to be mindful of good feelings exactly? Yeah, because good feelings are good, aren't they? Uh, that's kind of, you're missing the point. <laughs> you know, yes, yeah, so that's where it all kind of fits into it. And then going back to the internal-external thing, you know, it's about internal representation of, because as you know, John, because we spoke about it at great length on the practitioner course, what's out here is not in actual fact what's out here. What's out here is a projection, a hologram of what we think is out here, which is basically being created. Well, that's one theory. There's, there are other theories out there, but this seems to be the prevailing one at the moment. You know? and then um, What's his name? Is it Danny Eagleman? The guy that wrote the mind book and survived it, it Eagleman? I've forgotten his name now. I think it's Danny. Oh, but the bring. Yeah, it's, a, it's Eagleman, isn't it? But I can't remember his first name.
1: I can't remember his first name either. He, on, he did a BBC show, didn't he?
0: You know, actually brilliant. The book's really, really good. But he's kind of the prevailing theorist at the moment because neurology is just, way. I can't keep up. I'm not a neurologist. Um, but you know, the stuff we know about the brain now that we didn't know five years ago is incredible, um, which is really affecting things like therapy and like coaching. You know, the, the current thing about, you know, is consciousness real? Are we really conscious? Have you been following any of that stuff? Or free will. That's my favorite one. Do we actually have free will? Because if we don't have free will, it kind of messes with the justice system. Um, (laughs) There's an assumption of free will when you have, you know, guilt and innocence. If you had no control over your actions, how can you be held responsible for them? So it's really, you know, if this stuff takes hold, but you know, the the thing you've always got to remember about this is, going back to the stories, is there's data, well that data is meaningless. What we then get is an interpretation of that data. And the interesting thing is no data set is ever complete. So we naturally fill in the gaps from our own experience. We can't help it. Um, so, so that data. So, the mo- you, no one can be one hundred percent objective. It's impossible. And fooling yourself into being thinking you're objective is where a lot of the problems start. And this is where your know, scientism. You know, where people are obsessed with the fact that scientific method is the only way of understanding the world around us. You know, are almost treating it like a religion. That's where this whole objective misunderstanding is. Where they're thinking, well, science says. Who's science? I've never met him, you know? Um, so you've got to be careful about this stuff. But, but, you know, so you've got to be aware of the counterpoint because you've got the, the data, but that's how you interpret that. And how you interpret that is really what we were talking about earlier on the stories you tell yourself about our data. Stories is what fills in the gaps. Everything else is just information. That information is meaningless until we make a story out of it. And who, in it's often not who tells the most accurate story but who tells the most compelling story is the person you know there was another theory of evolution before darwin turned up and um, oh. the French guy whose name i can't remember do you know why we all talk about darwin's theory of evolution because he published first that's it There's yeah. doing the same thing so darwin rushed through the rushed through the, the Origin of species to get his theory in otherwise we wouldn't be talking about darwin we'd be talking about somebody else's theory of evolution you know, it's pretty much, you know, you'd be an idiot not to not, not to believe in it because the, the evidence is so compelling. But you always have to be aware that it's just a theory. It's just a model of the world around us. That's all it is. You know, it's, and it's a good story. Hmm. Because that's what models are, they're good stories.
1: Yeah. No, I was, I was, yeah, I like what you said then. It's, you should be paying attention to the structure, not the context. Yeah, but yeah I've, I've never heard it phrased that way. I like that.
0: Yeah, it's um because it's why you know. Um, tell me a band you like. Do you like a certain music? Name me a certain band you like. The Verve. Can't stand them. They're rubbish. Um, <laughs> no, but think about it for a second. If if there is an objective, if there is an objective thing in that statement I've just made, there one of us is right and one of us is wrong. Yeah, but well, that's not true at all because the content is identical, the Verve, but it's the structure in which we experience it. Your structure is different to mine which says that I like it and you don't. Oh, sorry, that you, you like it and I don't. It's, it's why certain people support certain football teams, and other people don't. It's why certain people vote one way and not another. It's why certain, because if there was one correct way of doing things, we wouldn't have political parties, would we? If you think about it, because it'd be one way of doing it. Yeah. We wouldn't have a political party. So there's clearly interpretation and that's got nothing to do with the content, but how we interpret that content, and that comes through our experiences, the stories we tell ourselves, and the structure, the the representative structure we then place around that experience. So, it's a thing.
1: so that structure, as well, then is would be mainly mainly governed by our emotions, um, or is it logical in there as well?
0: I I I I'm a, not a big fan of logic because <laughs> <laughs> think we're particularly logical and for a start we i used to be an accountant and so i studied economics and one of the things that always annoyed me about economics was a principle of the rational actor have you heard about the principle of the rational actor the rational actor works like this that if people were given all the information they would act rationally and therefore it's like markets you know stock markets um people act rationally they get they get the information and they act rationally they don't we are not rational logical creatures at all, we have there's an element of rational and logic to us, but we are predominantly emotional. We respond and act to emotion. We do things because they make us feel a certain way. We do things we, we 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 want to feel a certain way, so we do something, or we feel a certain way, so we respond to that. You know, it's like you're on a bad day, you do bad stuff. It's as simple as that. You know, you know, like I, I do all the time, I've got children, I'm tired all of the time, I'm crabby and short-tempered and fall down the stairs, and then, I, and then you start doing that thing, don't you, where you then, you get in a bad mood, so you start sorting the information you're looking for to reinforce your bad mood, so then, you know, someone's put a spoon in the drawer the wrong way around, so you focus in on that, it's a, it's, 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 it's a spoon in the drawer, it's, it's nothing, it's meaningless, but it's the wrong way around. So, you focus on it because it helps reinforce the bad state you're in. And you have to break that. And that's why NLP is really good about just breaking that state. But we've got to do it naturally. And it's like you say, so we, it's, it's, it's the emotion. We do things for a reason. And on the most basic scale, we do things to get away from pain and towards pleasure. You know, that's on the most basic, basic amoeba, amoeboid scale. That's it. More complicated than that because we're complicated creatures. But we're not amoebas. Sometimes I think we'd be better if we were. <laughs> I think we'd be happier if we were amoebas. Hmm, bit of acid, move away from that. Oh, bit of sugar, i move towards that. It's easy, simple. You don't even have to worry about the whole relationship nonsense because you just reproduce by yourself. You don't even <laughs> have to find, to find anyone else. And that's where it gets really complicated, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah, so I'm I'm in my experience in my experience, people people don't get what they want. And it's just, you know, I have a I have a very, very simple excuse me, I have a very, very simple process that I've, I've, I've dwindled down because I'm a great believer in simplicity. You know, like um, I don't know if you ever watched, um, uh, what's his name, Gordon Ramsay, the chef. He used to go to these failing restaurants. And what you always notice with these failing restaurants was pages and pages and pages and pages of, pages of stuff on the menu. Too much to do, but quality drops off. Too much choice, we can't cope with it. So the first thing he does, and if you, if you go to like a Michelin-starred restaurant or something like that, what do you see on the menu? You get maybe two or three starters, maybe two or three mains, maybe a dessert. Often they'll give you a, you know what they call you know the, the tasting menu, which is a brilliant scam because they've only got to cook one thing in the kitchen. But the good thing with that is because i have only got to cook one thing in the kitchen, they can cook it really, really well. So what Gordon Ramsay does is strip out all the unnecessary stuff and just does it basic. And that's kind of what I do with people all the time. We often think if we want to do if you want to be more successful or get more done, we have to do more, know more, learn more, act more, do it faster, do it bigger, do it better. It's not, it's completely the opposite, totally the opposite. You need to do less and you need to focus on that. So if you're not getting the results you want, take something away, don't add something to it, don't do more. If you're not getting fit, don't start doing more exercise, do less, but work out what the less, is. if you if you are restricted and what you can do you have to be very specific with your decisions and this is what really does my head in about a lot of this self-help baloney about life without limits it's the limits that define us It's the restrictions that make us focus if we have life without limits life becomes meaningless if you and I knew we were going to live forever and ever and ever and ever life becomes meaningless food tastes like dust we do the same thing a million times till we can habituate to the point we never enjoy it anymore. Then we become bored. We've all read these vampire lo- novels by Anne Rice. All the vampires are bored and stupid. You get all these people watching the Twilight movies. They go, "Yeah, I want to be a vampire." It's a cautionary tale. Vampires. It's not. You shouldn't want to be a vampire. You shouldn't want to be vampires. Read Anne Rice. It's a cautionary tale. If you live forever, you have without limits. There is nothing there. It's why so many people who own bazillions and bazillions of pounds all turn to spiritualism, because they suddenly realise that having limitless resources on this planet, everything just becomes meaningless because they can do whatever they want when they want to do it. It's why people like Jeff Bezos still work. He doesn't need to work. He's got bazillions in the bank. He could just sit on a beach and drink Mai Tais. It does not matter. But he recognises the fact that that money in the bank is meaningless. To be fair, he should give it all away. But when I had to do a socialist lecture, um, he should. he he focuses on work because it gives him that restriction that success that movement of what we're doing so if you want to be successful you want to need to do less and the only way you can work out how to do less is to know what it is you actually want in the first place and I will tell you one thing that I've learned from working with hundreds of thousands of possible people over the last 20 years when people come to see me nine times out of ten they haven't got a clue what they want they oh they might think they know what they want but when you ask them two or three simple questions, you realize they have not got a clue what they actually want. Um, and because most people don't know what they want, they're never going to get it. So they, And this is when people are suckered by the stuff on Facebook because they don't know what they want. So they let someone else fill in the gaps for them. Yeah, It's like I remember you spoke about a client of yours. I hope I'm not going to get him in trouble with this. And he said he wanted to move to Spain because he wanted to be happy. Remember? Yeah. It's like, well, how does he know that moving to Spain is going to make him happy? Oh, because his mate did it. But he's not his mate. No. So how's moving to Spain going to work? And that's when you have to go after that question, which I learned from Michael Breen, which is what will this do for them, get them, or give them? And once you start asking that question, you start finding out that what people do is they have a theory about what it is they want, and then they have a theory about what is how they're going to get it but they then just hook on to the first thing they see, you know, so if I had a Ferrari, I'd be happy. Well, are you happy right now? Would you be happier right now knowing a Ferrari's parked in your garage? It probably won't make a single jot of difference because when you're not thinking about the Ferrari, it doesn't make a single difference to your, you know, to the map of of the world. But you're probably spending an awful lot of money on that Ferrari. Rent one for the weekend. Enjoy it and hand it back, because then you've restricted it. You've got to enjoy it because it ends. You know, don't buy it, rent it. i and a friend of mine knows. Oh, what? 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 what uh, you know, I know. I know a few very, very wealthy people. One of the wealthiest people I know once said to me, he "Said you know what's better than owning your own private plane? Knowing someone that does own a private plane." Because. You don't have to have the worry about the upkeep and the cost and the staff and the insurance and the hassle. You just pop on that plane and fly where you want, and that's what it is. You know, super rich people own nothing; they just lease it all off people that do because they recognise that owning it is 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 not doesn't fulfil them. You know, you know, you having a Ferrari and your driver's depreciating every ten seconds. You know, you buy it for hundred thousand pound by next Tuesday, it's worth sixty thousand. Yeah, it's not going to make you happy. You know, um, but. So most people don't know what they want, so they need to define incredibly clearly what it is that they want. And most people, when it comes down to it, what they want is an emotional state. They wanna be happy, they wanna be fulfilled, they wanna be whatever it is. And once you got to that, you can then working out how to do it. And this is where NLP is brilliant. It recognizes that off, more often than not, changing the way you represent something to, you, to, to yourself is more important than changing the thing. So you might say, I hate my job, I'm going to quit my job. Whereas, I, you know, um, there's probably people who do the work you do that love it. Because we just spoke about it with the verb, you like the verb, I don't like the verb, it doesn't make any difference, it's just a thing. It's like, I, you know, there's a lot of things out there that I hate, to be fair, but I'm really glad that people like doing it. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of jobs out there I'm not interested in. I don't want to be a fireman, but I'm really glad there's someone who wants to be a fireman yeah you know I don't, i'm interested in being a surgeon but i'm really glad there are people out there that want to be surgeons you know what i mean so i'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for the job that fulfills us but if you think about it it's more it's easier to change the way we represent that experience i mean and find some way of enjoying it than the not you know than, than looking around for another job because what you'll often find is people will get stuck in a the sleep they'll have an idea about what their ideal job is and they'll get it and then they'll realize the that ideal job is really just the same as the other job they did. It's just in a different place, doing slightly different things at a different desk with a different computer. And so it's about helping people to understand what it is they want. And sometimes it's simply changing how they represent what they're doing now, and that meant happy. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you have to make that wholesale change. You know, but you don't want to go, you know, burning all your bridges before you work out that it's quite nice over here. You know. Oh no, yeah burn it down and go, Oh, it's nice We're over there, I can't get back. You wanna you know, you don't wanna be doing that. You wanna be over there first and making certain that you're all right with it. And so my big job, the big thing I do with clients is helping them define what they want. And often not, that will then set them on a course of action and will not need my intervention. Or they'll realize oh it's all right this. they'll carry on doing what they're doing. Um, but with a different different outlook on it. You know, so um, but it all just comes down to emotion as far as I can tell, how we how we feel about something more
1: than anything else. How do, how do you think we, we get to the point where, we, we, I mean, uh, we don't know what we want? How, how do we ever get to that point?
0: I don't think we ever know what we want. I, don't
1: think, anyone I, I think it shifts, do not I? I think it, it, yeah. it continually shifts.
0: I think when you're a kid, you know what you want. You want boo-boo, and that's it. <laughs> uh, you, want, you want milk, or you want nappy, or you want that, or want that. And then it gets predominantly more complicated from there, which is why you have this these people that then dress up in nappies. When they're forty-two or whatever, they get back to that, don't they? Um, I, I, I think. I don't. I think. I think we're more wandering, wandering into the realms of you know, like social philosophy, way beyond our, our knowledge or experience. I don't know. I think. Oh, life is complicated. Life is really complicated, and we can't know everything. You know, to quote book Mr. Fuller, the universe is non-simultaneously apprehended. We cannot know everything. So we are always working from a limited set of data. And because of that, we're we're constantly filling in the gaps. And the way we fill in the gaps is from our previous experience. So we're stuck in this feedback loop. So if our previous experience is bad, we're going to have bad feedback. And I think, and I think that's just what happens if we just get stuck in these feedback loops that aren't particularly useful. And then breaking the feedback loop is a secret. Because we're great at one to our learning as humans, aren't we? We can have one experience and it will then shape us for the rest of our lives. You know, you do one thing once. I'm never doing that again. That was rubbish. Uh, but you don't know. Maybe if you did it again next week with a different person in a different place. I, I've had people who've said to me, NLP is rubbish. And I said, Oh well, what did you do? And they'll give my experience. I'm going, Well, that's not really NLP. Or, or weirdly, you'll get people who get NLP's rubbish then book on my practitioner. And I'm going, Well, if NLP's
2: rubbish, what are you doing it again for?
0: I admire your tenacity to test your I had one woman come on a practitioner course her husband did NLP she thought it was rubbish, so she wanted to prove it. She <laughs> was what could be described as a disruptive experience a d- disruptive person that did experience. Um, I don't think I particularly changed her mind then. thing, but I think she softened. I think she softened, and um, she didn't hate it by the end of the week. Put it that way. Not sure she liked me very much, but she didn't like me. she didn't hate NLP So yeah,
1: so, I, I I was amazed that when I actually finished your course, it seems to be everywhere.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's, it's exploded! Exploded. When when 2000, you know, a friend of mine jokes that when he started his executive coaching, I nick his joke, but it's not mine. It was his. He started an executive coaching business in 2004, no, 2006, because we both started coaching at the same time, um, which is relatively recently if you think about it. Um, but I started calling myself a coach in 2006. Sorry, before then I could just called myself an NLP. I didn't really label it, but then I realised this coaching thing was getting big, so I jumped on the, the labelling bandwagon essentially for marketing. But he would joke that uh, an executive coach, people thought he owned a minibus. You know, no one. <laughs> needs to know. Um, when I got to NLP in like 98, I'd never heard of it. Most people hadn't heard of it. Uh, I did my qualification in, in London because I wanted to train with Richard Bambler. Then I did my trainer training and I started doing NLP on people. Um, so sort of from 2000, just working with people and uh, friends, friends of friends, that sort of thing. Um, and people didn't know what it was. People had never heard of it. A few people in HR would heard of it actually. I suppose some HR people and they'd heard of it. Uh, and then 2003, I did my trainer training. And started doing my training, and I set up the Birmingham R P training academy in Birmingham because that's where I lived at the time. And there was no other NLP in Birmingham at all. It was it was mainly in London, and then there was a few in Manchester, in Leeds. I think there was one, a few. It was all mainly on the south coast, and then there was one or two up in Glasgow, a couple of Leeds way. And then, but there was no one in the Midlands at all really teaching it specifically. There was a few people doing NLP on top of, you know, like business trainings, but no one did specifically NLP. So I was the first person that did it and we used to get everybody, you know, who wanted to do NLP uh, on the course because there was nowhere else teaching in the local area. Uh, And then, and then uh, it was probably only about five years ago, I would say it just suddenly went massive, massive coaching. Everything. you get people who good the, then you then you get the people who you know change personal history techniques and mlp you know change personal history it's not about lying but these people confuse it for lying and you get people who go oh i'm a coach oh how do you coach for since 2004 bollocks because i know the organization I'm trained within starts of 2012 don't pull all over my own eyes mate i'm a bit of an old damn hand. i may only look 12 <laughs> in this game for a long time and i now have seen John, the Johnny can lately is all turning up or claiming to have been doing it since they were born. And there's a guy that I know, I, I trained him. I trained him in 2007 and he puts on his LinkedIn page he's been doing it since 2000. Okay. I trained him in 2007. What he did was he had another company that he was already running in 2000 and all he's done is backfill the history to make it look like he's been doing that because since 2000 because, he's, you know, because the company was existing there's always been an NLP training company which it hasn't. Like he's not even an NLP trainer and he's off from trainings, it's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, NLP's really exciting And I think what happened was this, and, and this is this is one of my biggest failings in what I did because yeah, really, you no know, I believe in radical honesty, the mistakes I have made in all this time, I am nowhere near perfect. Um, 2008 happened, remember that? Ooh, that was fun. Um, and that went on for quite a long time. I managed to limp through two thousand and eight, 2009. 2010, I was on my knees. I had nothing. All corporate business had disappeared because the first thing you cut when you go to cut budgets is training always goes. Um, uh, and, and I was on my knees. It was only because of a, 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 a guy that I knew who was a friend, a family friend, essentially did some make work for me, bless him, and got me to head a project in his company that he paid me for that didn't really go anywhere. But you was essentially doing us a favor for me to give me some money. I would have been stuffed. I was out of it started to pick up back up again about 2011, 2012. But I kind of did this stupid thing. I missed the boat because I sulked to be honest with you. You know, I talk about emotional state. Do bad things, put in a bad state, do bad things. I got in a real funk. I got really, really bad about it, and I got, I got really sulky and really down and really quite worried because I didn't have any money and quite stressed. Which is not the place you want to be when you got to be creative. And I missed so much that happened in those four years. That complete was a complete game changer in the field. And and the two, the two things that really changed the game was and i should have been on top of this because i would have made a lot of money in those years ironically I, if i'd been on top of it i missed it because i missed the wave was there was one who was made redundant in those you know four years you know who was not the man who went out the door it wasn't you know your factory workers and stuff like that it was your middle management because no, yeah. they're the ones you know they don't do anything let's be honest don't eat biscuits. you can survive without most of them um so, what they did, of course, no one was in hiring middle managers. So, these people very sensibly did exactly what they did, took their redundancy and retrained as coaches and consultants. And then, so all of a sudden in 2000, 2010, 2011, 2012, coaching exploded. But, and I think it's, and, and forgive me for being mean, but I think people just became coaches because it looks better than, you know, consultant sounds better than unemployed on your LinkedIn page, doesn't it? Anyone can be a self-employed consultant. Doesn't mean actually getting any work. Um, and I've noticed a lot of these people have gone back into full-time employment. If you keep an eye on them, you know they haven't stayed as consultants and coaches. A lot of them have gone back into full-time employment, but a percentage has. So, of course, that's then increased the market vastly in Cardiff where I live now, um, where well, I train now. When I started in 2000, and I started training in Cardiff, running training in Cardiff in 2010, I think. I was the only NLP training company in Cardiff, the only one in South Wales. There was another guy sort of doing it, but he wasn't really doing it properly. And there was a few people who were based elsewhere who would run the occasional training in South Wales, but they weren't based in South Wales. I was the only one. There was another guy that was advertised in South Wales but actually did his trainings in London. Bit weird, but, you know. um, But I was the only one that specifically did training in Cardiff Ran it in Cardiff, advertised in South Wales and, and, and did it. And I would probably get a handful of people on the courses. I'd probably get six to eight people um, on it. Now, um, so over in 2019, um, there are now, I'm aware of at least three of the training companies in Cardiff who do NLP training there. And they've all sprung up in the last two or three years. They'll say they've been around forever, but they've sprung up in the last two or three years. Um, and it has absolutely exploded. I'm not sure that level of choice is good for consumers, if I'm entirely honest with you. I'm not sure it's good. And this is me being completely selfish because I want to train everyone in South Wales. <laughs> 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 but I'm not, I'm not convinced, I think, I think we should, um, you gotta be, there's a point where too much choice becomes too much choice, you know.
1: Yeah. Can we back up a little bit on what you said there? When you were saying you were the funk and you was, and you was sulking, yeah. what was the inflection point what was the thing that kicked you out of it or how did you kick yourself out of it
0: it was a war of attrition with my dark side essentially <laughs> uh, i i i discovered it was i just kept grinding to be honest i just kept grinding the mistake i made the other mistake i made was i kept grinding doing the same stuff and of course the world had changed so my my plan was essentially trying to outlast the recession. Does that make sense? Get enough work to outlast the recession. Once everything's better, everything will go back to how it was, 2006, 2007. The problem is one, it hasn't, as we all know. Um, you know, it's carried on and carried on and carried on. Um, and secondly, in that period of time, the world changed there was more coaches, the way businesses employed trainers changed. They started using third parties a lot more, which of course cut the profit and made it in- close the gatekeepers. The way it used to work, the way I got 90% of my, um in housework was either someone searched me on google and found me invited me for an interview i did a chat they liked the work they liked the cut of my jib i gave them a quote and i got the job or didn't as the case may be um or it was somebody came on my practitioner training either self-funded or by a company thought it'd be useful for their company and then employed me into the company that still happens to a certain extent but most organizations nowadays use third-party training providers you know it's, it's, these, it's these 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 um these sort of like leeches that now hang on the bottom of uh what are those? What are those? What are those things are? Clean sharks? What are they? You know, they clean sharks ourselves. What are they call those fish? That's essentially what these companies are. And uh, you know, they, 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 you know, say, don't you? Don't need to wipe your own bum. I'll, I'll lick it clean for you. That's essentially. Uh, so you can tell I'm bitter, can't you? I'm bitter, Joel. I'm bitter. So what's happened is now <laughs> I have to get to the gatekeeper of these third-party training companies that don't actually. Provide the training themselves. What what they're experts at is getting the bid. Does that make sense? This is what happened to Carillion. They're very good at getting the, the contract, but they can't supply the contract themselves. They third party it out. So of course the the, the, the the it all becomes squidged. So then, and these companies, these third party companies, what do you think they're interested in? Quality or cost when it comes to the trainer? Quality or cost?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Go on. You know which one. <laughs>
0: They got costs. So they will pick the person who's cheapest. So when I go around and give them my day rate right, and they pick themselves up off the chair and I said, well, I have been doing this for 20 years. I think I deserve a bit of cash for it. Mm-hmm. They go and employ some numpty who's been doing it for six months who will accept 200 quid a day, you know? So, they're the, so he's got squid. So he, one, you can't get in. Second, the quality's dropped off. I talked to someone at a local council and they said, the problem is now when we used to do tendering, it's cost first, quality second. The first thing we look at is the price. We don't don't look at their experience anymore. We look at the price. I didn't get a gig in a a, a big blue chip company because I had a lot more experience than the guy. In fact, as far as I could tell, the other guy didn't really have any experience. But he came in about 50% of my quote. So he gave him the gig. No one at any point said, why is he 50% cheaper? Yeah. (laughs) Which is the first question I would ask. Why is he 50% cheaper? Because either that guy is inflating his price and he's got a really big ego, or... This guy doesn't know what he's doing. Hmm, let's explore this a little bit more. But they didn't, they just gave him the gig. Because I knew someone who worked there and they rang me up. I said, Look, we're really sorry. They shouldn't have told me, which is why I'm not aiming the company, because I don't want to get him in trouble. But you know, so so the way I got out of my funk was essentially a realization the world had changed. And that was a very, very slow process, I've got to be honest. Because I was just I was I was just waiting for the world to go back to how it was. I thought a recession, it'll get better. But in that time you yeah, had more coaches. What, what happened in that time was, of course, was things like Facebook, social media, the internet really changed, barriers to entry collapsed. So I missed Facebook. I missed social media. Completely missed it. Totally missed it. Couldn't stand it. Thought it was stupid. Why do people want to see what I'm having for breakfast? Ridiculous. <laughs> I did not see the business value of marketing on Facebook at all. Totally missed it. Thought it was ridiculous. And then I was really late to Facebook. And I still am, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, look at my Facebook page. It's awful. It really is dreadful. Because I don't like it. And I, I don't like... I don't like that style of marketing, so I don't do it. But then I kind of think I should, then I do it half-heartedly. You know, that's my. You know, I know you want people's failings on this podcast, and if I'm entirely honest, that's it. I am rubbish at selling myself.
1: But if you, I'm with you on the Facebook thing, I, I don't, I don't feel it at all. So, uh, <laughs> but what, what if if you don't feel Facebook, what do you feel? What's, what's,
0: what's, you know, the lot. People are sucking in there to thinking it's all online, it's all marketing, all funnels, all all um, things. But the good old-fashioned file of fact, you know, the good old-fashioned black book is still your thing, you know, who you know. Now what Facebook, LinkedIn, like I've reconnected with someone on LinkedIn I hadn't seen since 2001 recently. We're meeting up, I'm, I might get some work out of it, it's superb. Um, you know, so what LinkedIn and Facebook has improved our networking ability, it's made it bigger. But it still comes down to those personal connections. And it's still about getting the work, most of my stuff comes through recommendation from other people still. But I've been doing this a long time, so my name's been out there quite a long time. And I, I, I still believe that personal connection is the key. Michael Breen, who I mentioned earlier on now, he's got an advantage that he's been doing this since the 80s. He's got a big book of connections. But he doesn't have a Facebook page. He's just not on Twitter. He's not on LinkedIn. He's not on any of them. And he hates it. He thinks it's all stupid. Um, but he doesn't need to be because he's built up this vast collection of contacts. And I think still think, that in business today, and it's going to come back around to it. It's going to come back around to it. I've seen a, an increased interest this year because you and know, I spoke about it. I want a new, like, journaling method. Remember, we were talking about journaling methods and like doing stuff for productivity. Mm. And I was using apps because I found I just wouldn't look at them on my phone. The minute I picked up my phone, i go straight into, you know, Facebook or Instagram or something and lose myself for three hours not looking at the, you know, the, the to do list I'd written in my notes. So I wanted something, you know, analog is a new trendy word. So this is analog. Yeah, and uh, and I've noticed people are going back to that because I've noticed that this stuff, you know, your, your iPhones, it's distracting. there's too much. And I've noticed this year, the last six months, is a real move towards going back to the old school ways of analog, writing things down, you know, that sort of stuff. So I do think it's probably going to come back around. I think you know, good old fashioned meetings, uh, good old fashioned getting to know people. I think is the thing. You know, most people I know in business, they got their first big break from someone they knew. They didn't get it through, you know, a, a, a Facebook advert or something like that. They didn't get it through that. They got it through someone they knew, personal recommendation.
1: Yeah, uh, it was a big break. No, I, I got um, friends that are running Facebook ads and, I, and I'm like, there's, there's got to be something else you can do other than Facebook ads. No, no, don't get me wrong. I think if you've got the money to invest, it's like yeah. have you had a grand candle. No,
0: what's that one?
1: Uh well, he's, he's a, like, um, he's a big American. Uh, I think he's a property developer, but he's, he's selling like self-education,
0: right. you know, he, yeah.
1: be better type thing. And
0: uh, all, all, all stuff. Yeah. Yeah,
1: he's probably, you know, honestly going to ex- exceed Tony. I think where he's going, cause he's, he's a, he's a good, he's a good listen. He's yeah. very energetic. Yeah. He seems to know what he's talking about. Um, But obviously he's got the cash to splash.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, and then I can see then when you've got the cash to splash out, like how how you could make a difference Mm -hmm. to your own returns. But when you're not so much shoestringing it, but even just early days starting off, you're a very small fish in a very big pool.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, And not knowing what the algorithms are and everything (laughs) and how it works and,
0: the dark arts and it's, it's black magic. That's why this consultants out there that do it all for you. Yeah. I think Facebook ads work really. Like I'm, I teach martial arts at Thai boxing. I'm just actually at this moment in time because I moved here quite recently, looking to open a, a club in my local area. And um, so Facebook, I'm going to do a Facebook ads for it. Now that's ideal for it. You set your location. You set. Yeah. Your, if you're running a little local business like that, you know, a florist or you know, a martial arts school or you know, whatever it is, I think Facebook ads work really well for the one-man band because as you said they're focused they're specific they're fairly cheap and you don't need to know the complicated algorithms because you just do in a local area. You know, you don't have to worry about, you know, um, you know, split testing your adverts and all that stuff that people go on about because you probably only have a target market of a few thousand split testing is not going to make a single jar difference. You know, you're not going to have enough of a, a market to get enough statistics to let you know it's going to work. But like you say, then you get the big boys out there who just have the money. They, they, they don't do it themselves. employ consultants to do it all for them. And a lot of automated getting access that's thousands and thousands of pounds to get it. Saved up before you even start and once you've got that on facebook how's a little minnow like you and i gonna you know compete with that we're not the only way you're going to do it is if you're very specific in your niche and you fulfill a need that no one else is being fulfilled um or or have a a better story or a different story that no one's looking into but I, I, i don't think i think social media is here to stay at least in the medium term i would imagine i think it will go I've got, I've got a prediction or disappear my kids won't be on it they'll think it's really sad and pathetic that people used to put all their stuff on Facebook you, know, yeah. you know I, I think well, because we all rebel against the generation before us we all rebel against the generation most people use Facebook nowadays the people at our age kids aren't using Facebook it's all about the gram now apparently whatever that is um, uh, and, and, and they'll think it's really sad that you're putting your face on, online all the time I reckon I think there'll be a big we all should rebel against our parents and also particularly in Europe then they're realising this stuff is like the Wild West. And they'll, they'll litigate against it. You know, if someone puts bullshit on Facebook, you, no one stops you. If The Guardian or The Telegraph or someone else puts bullshit on there, they can't get away with that. Press standards, you know? And I know there's a lot of people listening who are probably very cynical about the free press, but, you know, um, Guardian can't run a bullshit story. They get shut down, they get fined. You and I could set up a blog write bullshit stories, put it on Facebook, it would get shared millions of times and no redress. So the, company, so the European Union, they're going, hang on a minute, and, and Britain to that extent, they're going, hang on a minute, what's going on here? So I've got a feeling they will litigate things, like, they will control Facebook and essentially make it something like a publisher. So Facebook is responsible for what they publish. Facebook will be fine if people publish bullshit on it. Because it is a publisher. That's what it is. People, we publish stuff on Facebook. It's just the same as we write a book and send it off to Penguin and then publishing it. You write a post on Facebook, it's the same thing. They are publishing your work for you. So it's their responsibility, their legal department has to make certain that what they are putting out in your name is not breaching any laws. At the moment, because it's social media, it's not doesn't fall under that remit, but I think it will. I think it will at some point. So you'll it'll, it, it'll have a two-pronged approach. One, all the bullshit will disappear. It'll become really expensive to manage. So the share prices will crash because they won't make any money because these companies barely make any money as it is. They say they do, but they don't because they don't do anything. They don't make anything. You switch the off switch on the service on Facebook, it's gone. You know, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Um, uh, someone you clean them and plugs it by mistake to hoover the floor, buy by Facebook. Um, it's not worth anything. Um, so you've got that and then you've got the kids who will naturally rebel against them, the generation above them. And the kids nowadays are all about putting everything on social media to get the likes and the hugs and the kisses and whatever it is. Kids will suddenly go, Well, that's sad. Why do I want people seeing me on holiday for? Get over yourself. It's gonna happen, isn't it? So it'll just suddenly vanish, I think. I think in the medium terms here. So I think a marketing mix that includes some form of social media is essential. But I think if you're a small guy, You've got to be very because you can't do it. I can't do it. You know, I, I look after two kids, and you know, and, and run a business and see clients and see a waffling on the for an hour and a half and things like that. I don't have time to sit on Facebook all the time designing ads, writing blogs, all that sort of People who are all over Facebook, I think you're not very successful, are you? Where do you have the time to do all that? I don't.
1: My missus, right? She's she's doing the IGA independent travel agent.
0: Yeah,
1: and it's it's all about connections on social. She's, I think she's probably spending eight to 10 a day Yeah. doing it. Yeah. It's like she's working more hours than I would if I was in work. It's ridiculous. I, and yeah, I've got no desire to spend that amount of time doing it. But but she's
0: got to, she's got to do it. You know, yeah. As you say. Like you say, these businesses nowadays have people who, a friend of mine works for a company, it's part of his job. They, they do it in shifts because it's actually mind numbingly, destroyingly just depressing to do it all day where they have social media trained people and then they will for a couple of hours be the social media so they'll be doing the facebook and the twitter and answering people's questions and that and then it shifted to somebody else because they realize after a while they just want to write you on it, so they take them off it
2: before they <laughs> the cup of coffee you get someone else to do it. <laughs> um, <a> crack,
0: yeah. <laughs> but so you've got you've got um so, but you've got companies that employ people full time to do this stuff. You and I can't when we see clients, no. no. And anyway, we do this because it's a lifestyle business, right? We don't do it cause we, we, you do it because you love doing it. it you love doing it, but you also do it because of the freedom it gives you. You don't have to get up in the morning and go to work, and you don't. You can sit at home in your pajamas and do, you know, write blogs and stuff. It's brilliant. Um, so you do it partly for that as well. And if you were locked into doing on Facebook five to ten hours a day, well, you might as well go and get a proper job. Goodness me, you know, yeah, like stuff with that. Um, but you know, other people love it. There's a thing. Other people really, really enjoy it. So I'm not there to take it away from them. If you really love the Facebook and that's your thing, of course you're gonna market yourself through it. You know, you're gonna go on there and you're gonna do it and then an all power to you. But as you say, if it's not your thing, there are a lot of other alternatives out there for marketing. You don't need to do that. I still think the old fashioned ways are the best. You know, the email lists. You know, it's like, um, look at Tim Ferriss. You know, how did he make all this money? He didn't do it on Facebook, he did it through email lists. So what he did. He wrote some blogs. That's how he did it. So he made all this money. And also, what Tim doesn't tell you, he's had a lot of connections. But you know, we don't talk about that. <laughs> it is that. You dig, dig behind. This is depressing. But behind a big name, Anthony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, someone like that, dig behind them and find out who the power behind the throne is. Because there's always a power behind the throne. These people didn't just make it by themselves. There might be their rags to riches tale. They tell you because it looks good on the back of the book. But it's not. You know, Tony Robbins has at least four different origin stories he tells people, each one slightly different each time about who did it. But what made Tony Robbins was Guthy Rankin, who was the marketing, the, 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 um, the, 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 the you know, the PVC shopping channel, all those people and those adverts. That's essentially what made him. That was his big break. Um, was he got on that. He met a guy who accessed that. It's a quite a long story, but that's how he did it. Um, there's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a good thing because I'm highlighting that it's contacts that make it. Yeah. You can puff up here from nowhere. You see it with musical people. Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran's another one. I love Ed Sheeran. Lovely chap. Totally respect him. Like his music. Very boppy. Um, annoyed me when I was trying to get to Cardiff that one day when he sold out Millennium Stadium and I sat on the bridge for hours. But that's beside the point. Um, but, he didn't, but his rags to riches tale about being homeless and sleeping on benches after doing gigs and stuff, that is all PR nonsense. Yeah, He had a massive machine behind him, you know, and so you get people like Lily Allen discovered on? oh no, uh, was it Justin Bieber discovered on YouTube? No, he wasn't. Yeah? yeah, Nonsense, he had a massive PR machine behind him doing that. But that's the story they tell. Uh, but it all comes down to contacts and nepotism, who you know and that sort of stuff. So if you want to be successful like that, don't look at the veneer, this is what I'm saying. Don't look at the stories that tell you, look at underneath and work out how you can replicate what's going on. Um, it's the NLP modelling, you know. It's like the NLP modelling, isn't it? We we look at the behaviour, then we look at the purpose of the behaviour, what they're doing it for. And I tell the joke, don't I, of, of my friend who really liked Jim Morrison, so he grew his hair long and started drinking. You know, he's modelling the wrong bit. He's copying the wrong behaviour. So many people who get into NLP and start copying bandless so they grow their hair long, put on weight and start talking in a rubbish American accent. You know, it's like, but you're missing the purpose of the behavior. So you get people who go, oh, Justin Bieber was famous because the story says he was did it on YouTube. I put all my videos on YouTube. No one's watching them. Boo-hoo-hoo-hoo, i am unsuccessful. It's because you, that's not what happened. That's not what happens. You need to dig behind it. Replicate the steps before then. Yeah, you want to be the next Tim Ferriss. Don't write a book called The Three-Hour Work Week. Well, that'd screw him up, wouldn't it? <laughs> I do the four. hours in <laughs> three-hour. Seven steps to happiness. I do six. Um, yeah, yeah. That messes them up, doesn't it? Seven habits to successful people. I've got four. Um, that's the problem. The minute you put numbers on the trouble. someone will always undercut you. Um, and you know, don't write a book called the Seven Day Work Week and then try and write a blog. That's not going to work. How did Tim get his big break? Who did he market it to? Who did he give it to? Who did he speak to? Who did he know that could give him that leg up? Because there's always someone in your life, there's always someone you know that can get you a leg up, can get you into someone. There's always someone you can meet, who can introduce you to someone. You know know, that Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, we all know someone who knows someone who knows someone. Mm -hmm. And that is what it comes down to. There are people who break it on the internet. There are people who make successful Facebook adverts. There are people who put their song on YouTube and suddenly get a record deal. Do you know what we hear about those people? because it very rarely happens. That's why we hear about those people. That's why you can only name three people that got successful on YouTube, because there was only three people who got successful on YouTube. Yeah, that's it, but we, 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 we survive a bias. Everyone knows the story of Steve Jobs who built Apple in his garage. No one knows the story of Steve Gibbs, who worked down the road, who spent 40 years doing it, went bankrupt and didn't succeed. Everyone knows the one that made it, and they're all the ones that they churn out at these health help seminars about, I made a bazillion pounds a week, blah, 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 blah. So do you watch the TV show Hawaii 5 by any chance? I have done. The, the new one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's good. good. I love Danny. He's so funny. He's a like proper cynical. Anyway, um, there was a, an episode on that. It was the, the classic Ponzi, the classic pyramid scheme. We've all seen them where they, they don't sell. You're not selling perfume. You're not selling like crappy makeup. You're selling a lifestyle, and it's all about how many people you sign up. And they, who was it. They're the classic ones. They do this, um, and you don't make you don't make money from selling products. You make selling, You make money from getting suckers to sign up for you, and uh, that's the way it works. So you sell the lifestyle. And yes, there are a percentage of people who make a lot of money out of it because they're shilling it to people who aren't making any money whatsoever at the bottom end. Um, you know, you don't make money selling products. You make money getting people to sign up to sell products. That's how you do it. Cut that bit because I've just said, um, I've seen this, this Joel. cut that bit out. I, I can't say that again. you are
2: alive.
0: Just I say it again without selling the product?
2: <laughs> yeah. That was
0: funny. It's the truth. It's the truth. It won't stop them suing us, Joel. It won't stop them suing us. When you get a an F- letter <laughs> and they'll ask you to set the podcast down. Um, you know, but you have these pyramid schemes and, and they sell it. You don't make the money selling the product. You're making the money getting other people to sign up to sell the product. That's the way it works. So it's about the marketing side of things and that you're not selling the product. You're selling the idea and the feeling behind it so you'll get all those people at the top who are successful and you go oh i want to be them what you don't see is the hundreds of people underneath that have lost money hand over fist trying to show the products because they don't have the connections they don't have the cool idea they don't have the stuff like that so I, you know i'm fairly convinced it's going to come down to uh going to come down to who you know you know if you want if you want to be successful it's building who you're working out who you know and that will be the person that will make the thing, not the Facebook ad or the funnel or the, you know, the marketing email list or anything like that. So I've made all my success. You, you, to be honest, I did it off the back of somebody else. Um, somebody who trained you though. Yeah, it was um, Bob, who I mentioned earlier on. He'd been running a martial arts school for 20 years. Martial arts, you get a lot of people walking through the doors. Hundreds of people from every walk of life. So he had a mass market of people. So when he started doing NLP, who do you think he sold it to? Students all his students, everyone that he knew. He was on the phone, he was chatting to people he used to know, he had clubs everywhere. So we filled our first NLP courses through mainly through his students, or students, friends, family, contacts, stuff like that. So it then allowed me to build those contacts for myself. Yes, we got some people from online adverts, we got some people from um, Google, we got some people from Shabbat, but most people came from people he knew. Then I built a reputation, and then people would come and find me, there's two, there's two ways people did it. They'd either come and train with me because I had the reputation or they essentially just typed in NLP train in Birmingham and I was the only one there. The problem we've discussed with that now is that worked back then when there wasn't anyone else doing it. But now you type in NLP Birmingham you get three pages of results. Mm-hmm. Who did choose? You know? it's much more difficult for the consumer to choose who they're going to like, the customer to choose who they're going to like. And it's much more difficult for me, them to control or the business owner to control who's going to see them. And that, I had a geographical niche. And if you don't have a geographical niche, it suddenly makes it a lot, lot harder to do. Mm. Um, I do sometimes think that's where Facebook might be useful because you can set your niche by so many different algorithms. Like you can, you know, you're the midlife crisis man. So you put in men aged between 38 and 41 or whatever you know, or 38. Why is midlife nowadays? I don't know. It's just shifting. <laughs> I <think> it's 35 <laughs> yeah. to 45, I think. I don't feel poor. I don't feel midlife. Sometimes I do. When these hurt, that sort of thing. I, oftentimes, I feel like 17 still, you know. But I think I think that's a big problem with midlife, though, isn't it? You've got all really these man-childs. we i growing up.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah, you've had this conversation, haven't we, man-childs?
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, they're all in their three-quarter length cut-off shorts and they're shaved heads, and their little bellies, and they're running around looking like toddlers. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that was me a few years ago. And you saw the lights, Joel. This was the thing. You saw the lights. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going to go myself a manly beard. i uh, yeah. gonna Embrace my middle age.
1: I've so embraced it, fine. well and truly. Well and truly. <laughs> so, so tell us, as you, as you look back on your life now, what, what lessons do you think have taken you longest to learn?
0: Oh, um, marketing definitely selling myself. Selling yeah. yourself? Yeah, that I'm. I still am rubbish at marketing. Uh, I'm awful at mm-hmm. selling myself. Genuinely, I know I'm waffling on here, and I might sound like I'd be full of myself, and like I know what I'm talking about. But really, you know, it's the old Billy Connolly thing, isn't it? You know, people who stand up on stage and show off tend to be the most insecure, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why they need to stand up and show off. Um, it's you know. It took me. It took in the early days. It took me a very the, the big thing. is the thing I tell everyone that I work with. In the early days, it took me a very long time to get my head around the fact I was running a business, and I think that's that's the big shift. That's what I speak to everybody about when they come to me, say they want you know advice setting up a business or a coaching company. Which incidentally is another thing that is a growth field, isn't it? If you notice that, you know, it's like the Klondike thing. You know, first you get the people looking for gold, and then you get the people who turn up selling equipment for the people looking for gold because they suddenly realize there's no more gold left and the money is selling the the, the, the stuff to the people looking for the gold. What's happened is mm, what's, uh, I'm not sure when it shifted, but it wasn't that long ago. You used to have everyone being coaches. Now you've got everybody supplying stuff into coaches. If you notice that, yeah. so you get so many LinkedIn requests from people who can just do one because they're like, I help coaches get their first 500, six figure salary customers. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute, you're talking about marketing, you've just sent me a random LinkedIn request. You haven't written me a note, you haven't said hello. You know, I like to be taken to dinner before we do any of that stuff. Thank you. It's, it really frustrates me. So they just send it to me and they go, oh, hi, I want to be this. And I'm like, "Oh." so sometimes I'll accept them. and go, hi, that's great. Thanks for sending the LinkedIn request. This is what I do if you're interested. And they'll like, never hear from them again. And I'm like, well, what if you sent me the LinkedIn request for you doofus? Clearly not interested in working with me. So what have you sent it for? You know, you've just typed in "coach" into LinkedIn, seen me, and sent the request to the first page of people. And it's—you're and meant to be sending businesses about people interacting and networking. Yet you're not interacting and networking. Yeah, just contradicted yourself, which means you're either an idiot, arrogant, or rubbish at what you do. And I have no interest in working with you, unless, of course, you want me to help you set your own business and stop being an idiot and arrogant. And Fully yourself. But yet, it suddenly changed. It went from the gold rush of the coaches to now it's the people selling in stuff for coaches to do. And I started this in 2008, actually, 2007, 2008. I wrote an ebook in 2008 about it. And it's because I had a lot of people like yourself who came on my training courses who were interested in setting up businesses and they speak to me about it. And I go, oh, "That's don't ask me <laughs> the mistakes I made. And I suddenly realized, hang on a minute, there's demand here. And what I wanted was to help people. Who wanted to set up their own business to essentially avoid the mistakes I made, so that they wouldn't have the same problems? Um, so I essentially just wrote a little e-book and I would give it away free with 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 my with my um to people who wanted because it didn't do as part of the practitioner training because I recognised the you know the vast amount of people on it who don't want to set their own business so doing that so I thought the easiest way to do it was to then offer follow up support for people who wanted to do it one to one it'd be more tailored it'd be easier to do it would be more specific and then I wrote an e-book on it. Um, And the the big thing I I tell everyone in that is you are now a business owner. You now run a business. If you were going to coaching, you have to get your head around the fact that you are not a coach, you're a business owner. And you have to think about all those things that come. And I've had people who jacked it in after me talking to them because I've suddenly realized I don't want that. And there's no harm in that whatsoever. There's no harm in suddenly realizing that what you thought you want, you didn't want in the first place. they suddenly realize I've got to worry about tax. They've got to worry about insurance. They've got to worry about spreadsheets, they've got to worry about marketing. And then when you tell them that particularly when you're starting out, 80% of your time will be trying will be doing admin and marketing, and only 20% of your time will be doing what you describe as your business, they go, oh. Because what they think is they set themselves as a coach put their Facebook page up, start their website, get some business cards printed, open the doors, and people will come to be coached, you know, and it will be mown down with a flood of coaches, ready to work with them. And then they realize it doesn't work like that. And they then have to have several different iterations of the business and they have to have one niche that fails in them, and then the niche that doesn't work, and then they have one niche that suddenly works, and then blah, 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 and then all of a sudden you're away. And it takes, you know, a good 18 months, two years, three years, five years, 10 years to get going. Um, and so he did the biggest failing I think I made, which is the same as everyone else, is not being professional enough in the early days. Not being, I'm, you know, we need to treat this like it's a profession. We need to act like we are accountants, like we are solicitors, like we are. And it doesn't help that you've got the disingenuous cowboys and shitbags online who are acting like gurus. And people see that and go, I wanna be a guru. That's not the way it was. You know who my, 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 my models are for, um, for my success in this business? They're your accountants, your solicitors, your people that sell into businesses, your marketing guys. That's who i look to for inspiration, not your Anthony Robbins and your Tim Ferrisses and stuff. Cause they're, they're not really doing this. You know, they're not, they're not dead. They, they, what they do and what you do will never be the same unless you're amazingly lucky. You'll have a really cool connection. So you're a business you're a professional. You've got to act like it. The minute you start, you've got to start thinking, right, how would I think, act, behave, look like, act like, be like if I am a professional? So you've got to pick the sort of profession you want to be, and you've got to like it, and then you'll be cool. And you've also got to ask yourself what you're doing it for. How much money do you want to make? How much do you want to make it? How much time do you want to spend doing it? Because the idea, there's a, still a ridiculous belief in any entrepreneurial business that you have to work like 100 hours a week at it or something like that. If you're working 100 hours a week at your start a business, you are doing it wrong. You do not need to spend that much time doing it but there's it's, it's, it's a name for it nowadays. Then like it came as hustle porn. Well, you gotta be hustling, man, you gotta be hustling. And it's these people, you know, I've got a startup and I'm doing 80 hours a and I sat there at dinner going, I'm sorry, Joel, I can't talk to you, I've got to send a text to my. I've got a really important email with a guy in Tokyo, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, if you're working 80, 100 hours a week, and, and you, you don't need to do that. I never worked 80, 100 hours a week when I started out. Then you know, my wife worked Monday to Friday, nine to five. So that's why I worked mother died at nine to five because when she was at work. And then when she stopped, I stopped because I wanted to spend time with her. And you know what, I was fairly successful. I probably could have been more successful if I worked more hours, but I didn't want to. Besides, people have to sleep at some point. You can't be ringing people up at three o'clock in the morning. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's about being professional and defining what you want. And like I said, then the other one which you've always spoken about a lot is the, the funk of you know, just missing, not managing my own state effectively. In two thousand eight, essentially getting a sulk and therefore missing a vast potential that I could have done.
1: So what have you put in place to
0: make sure that don't happen again? Or... Being more specific in what I do, that was a thing. Well, what is it? What is it that I actually want to do want to be doing at the moment in time? My business is very, very different to what it was back then because I'm not starting bad. So at the moment it's trickling along the bottom. You know what it's like when you've got kids, everything takes 10 times longer than it should anyway, or seems like it should. So, you know, like, I can't believe it's April already, to be honest with you. I've still got to do this in January and thinking, why have I done that yet? Oh, it's because I'm a dad. That's why. I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, so it was, uh, so it's been more specific. And, and also, not being so hard on yourself. It's very easy in this game to see someone else getting successful, thinking, what are they doing that I'm not? or missing a contract or missing potential and beating yourself up about oh i didn't get it i can't believe i missed out on it oh no it's dreadful oh they booked with somebody else and then you get desperate and once you get desperate that is not a good place to be you know it's like you know people ring up and go i'm thinking of booking with somebody else you wearing rubbish Come try with me that's not a good look yeah so it's about if you manage you've got to manage your expectations and define what you want and in a way it goes going back to the restrictive thing again limiting it if you limit what you're doing you can define it effectively. It's restrictions that define what you do. And these are restrictions that give your life meaning. And if you can restrict it effectively in a way that you want to, because we're all restricted. It's just making so we define the barriers to our life. We don't let somebody else define our barriers for us. You know, It's like you've got kids, we've got kids. You know, it's like you can very rigid barriers and let them do what they want in the middle. That's, that's being a good parent, isn't it? somewhere between we don't do that and I'll go on then. That's kind of the, the, the continuum of being a parent. And that's what it's in all life. I don't do that, I'll go on then. And if you define your barriers really clearly and don't let anyone else define them for you, what are your limits? What are your capabilities? What can you do in the time and space you've got available to you? Then I think you'll be happy because you'll be filling that with stuff that you want. If you don't define it, if you won't have anything and people things will leak outside or someone else will define it for you and you'll find yourself doing something that you don't really want to be doing in a way that you really don't want to be doing it. I think that's it. To be honest with you, do yeah. less. Do less, Joel. Do less. That's the secret.
1: But yeah, you, that's what he was beating into us in the course, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, what 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 doesn't need to be here?
2: Mm.
1: What, yeah. you know, what can you take away? Because and yeah. used to say that was the one of the core things of NLP was, you know, don't add, take away. And I've taken that on, like, in my life to try and see what, how, how I can improve it. Yeah. and but what I do find is especially when you're trying to um like a business startup or you're trying to start something th- there's so much content and so much information and contradictory information out there you've got someone that's, um like i love Gary V, right yeah. and he's and he's one of the ones with the hustle you know yeah. um and his and his his message has slightly changed or he's clarified his message now as in i expect people to sleep Yeah, what are you doing with the other sixteen hours of the day? Yeah, you know what I mean. So good on him, fair play. Um, But I find myself—I think—podcast. I want to do a blog. I want to do Instagram. I want to do Facebook. I don't want to do Facebook. I don't like Facebook. (laughs) Um, Instagram, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, So what I've decided is. And this is when the odd thing is once I made a decision, i'm going to focus purely on this podcast.
2: yeah
1: it's spiked,
2: yeah
1: now this is the bit I was wanted to ask your professional opinion on was if if you've got a subconscious block
2: yeah
1: how 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 and perhaps it's just the way I'm interpreting it interpreting it, but how can removing the block? create or manifest differently in your reality because I didn't know I was blocking myself.
0: Yeah. Well you see that that's the first interesting thing is the language you're using to describe the problem. You're saying it's subconscious and you're saying it's a block. So the first thing you have to think about is well one, how do you know it's subconscious? Because if it's subconscious then you wouldn't know about it. And secondly what do you define as a block? The minute you start calling something a subconscious block, it becomes a subconscious block. Does that make sense? Okay. If we go back to what I was just talking about with the restrictions is this just a restriction? Is this just something that you need or want to work within? Does that make sense? So we reframe the experience. We start. We don't talk about it as about a blocker touch We talk about it as about the limits to your experience. Now, are those limits to this experience useful? If they're not, we need to figure out a way of expanding it. It's as simple as that. Um, we all have hangups. We all have contradictions. We all have prejudices. We all have things we like. We all have things we don't like. We all have, and, and everybody has different hangups and different ways of looking at like We've just spoken about like you and me. We seem to share the experience that we don't particularly like people on social media with people out there who love it. I am not saying they shouldn't love it because that would be just ridiculous. I could be wrong. I don't know. Um, but it's just our cup of tea. Yeah. So what you've got to start looking at is, is are these limits, these restrictions, meaningful to us in some way? And if they're not, how can we then rephrase them in a way that they become useful? So, so if you have a subconscious block, often what happens is you target something. And it's the, um, the primacy of effect. Do you, you remember the reticular activating system that spoke about it?
2: Yep.
0: It's once we're interested in something, we pay attention to that, and we don't pay attention to anything else. So what's probably going on with the subconscious block if you want to describe it as that is you're thinking about something which is stopping you seeing and experiencing other things so what is it that and you do that from your prior experience you know there's certain things i really hate now i could go through years and years of therapy to work out why i hate them um and then undo that block and become maybe a better human being or i could just accept that's just the way it is and Get on with my life. <laughs> yeah. You know, because we can't love everything. We can't like everything. We can't enjoy everything. We can't experience everything. Because as we spoke about, life has limits. We find everything. I'm one of my failings is I can be quite a terrible grass is greener person. I can be a bit like, oh, what's going on over there? Oh, I'm missing out on something over there. Oh, I want to go and have a look at what's over there. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, therefore, I'll do something and then go, oh, you know, like a little dog. <laughs> and then next thing you know, I'm possible something else or I'll end up not focused. So in a way is a subconscious block
2: actually a good thing because it's
1: you focused. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it, it does keep you focused. It's keep it, it, I recognize that I'm not finding my audience or
2: mm.
1: I'm not enjoying it. That's that's probably like you go back to say go with the feelings. Yeah. I don't enjoy it. Like, I, I enjoy i enjoy this yeah but i yeah. haven't really changed perhaps i'm just making it fit like you say you recall past from the you know i'm relating the fact that it's it's spiked because i've said in the past i'm focusing on my podcast yeah. whereas it could be a number of different things that have caused a spike
2: mm.
1: outside of my control know what right? i'm saying it's just uh it's an odd one. It's, it's just perhaps it's just a massive coincidence that it's come about.
0: But if you enjoy, if you enjoy doing podcasts, which you say you did? I, I think one you you made the right decision. You've already you like you say you've just listed, haven't you? Every business book you buy says so, so you got to do this and you got to do that. You can do the other. You gotta do that. And, <laughs> and you go how? <laughs> how am I going to do all that and still have time to do clients? You've got to produce your products, rate your products, products, get them online, blah, 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 advertise them, sell them. Uh, you need millions of pounds up front. You need a whole team working behind you. You need to own a bloody BBC, you know, to get it all out there, which is, you just can't do that. So you've got to limit it. And the way you limit it, I would say, unless what you enjoy is absurdly stupid and not helpful at all, do what you enjoy to begin with. Because it will motivate you to keep going. So if you enjoy, like I say, if it's absurdly stupid and not gonna work, then we have to look at that. Yeah, we have to look at finding other ways to enjoy things. But take the course of easy action first, you know, take the road of easy action first. And if you really enjoy doing the podcasts, do the podcasts. Yeah, does that make sense? If you really enjoy doing Facebook, do the Facebook. If you really enjoy getting yourself on Instagram, do Instagram. But if you try and do them all, it's not going to work. If you think about it, um, yeah, a lot of people might have online presences and they might have a Facebook and Instagram and a Twitter and something like that. But have a look, what are they predominantly on? You know, a lot of people, they'll be predominantly on one mm-hmm. and they'll the others as a filter, as a feed. So what you're doing is you're predominantly in the podcast, but you're probably using Instagram and Facebook to feed into that podcast. You're doing a bit of it, but that's probably all you need to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you know, the secret is to follow your fascination. You follow what you enjoy doing. Follow what you enjoy. You'll keep doing it. Now, there's going to be hard slogs along the way. There's going to be things you need to do, and there's going to be things you have to suck it up and get on with it. Um, but as long as you keep in mind what you're doing it for, then you're going to enjoy it. Now, if you're enjoying this, just podcast and chat, we've only been two hours, close <laughs> You
1: see when, we, we wrap it.
0: then yeah, it's going to go mad. I'm going to. I'm going to wrap it. I have to do a part two. You might have to cut all this bit, and we redo it all again. Um, uh, I can't watch. Talking about now. Um If you really enjoy this, you've got to work out where to monetize it. Simple as that. Yeah. yeah. If you enjoy doing it. The secret is Lao Tzu said, "If you found it, no, was it Lao Tzu or Confucius? I can't remember which." If you find a job you really enjoy doing, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. Yeah um so you either find a job that exists that you really enjoy doing you know i know a guy who is obsessed with lifts he's a lift maintenance guy he loves it, he loves it. i'm so glad because i go in lifts i don't, I don't enjoy being a lift maintenance person yeah. um he reads you know, he brings a manual home and read it he loves it fantastic that's he's on work he Gets some walks he's in he's loving his life loving his life other we may laugh because it's lifts but hey who cares he's happy or you work out how you can do something that fascinates you and keeps you going and keeps you interested and then you just go work out how much and, and, and then and the whole success thing is bollocks isn't it because then it's about like money make your six figures as a coach or just enjoy being a coach and making enough money to take your kids on holiday you know yeah there's ways to make money if you want to make money probably not legal probably not nice definitely not moral um if that's what you want or you can do something you really enjoy doing and if you're really lucky you'll be in that area where they're bisect <laughs> you know and you make a lot of money doing something you love uh but i think you've got to make your choice first do you want to make money or do you want to do something you love yeah and if you want to make money you're gonna work out how to make money and if you want to do something you love, you go work out how to do something you love to make money enough money to make it worthwhile. Because let's be honest, even the Buddha had to pay the bills. And you know, there's nothing wrong with monetizing what you do uh, because you've got to make your money. Out of it somehow. And also, you've got to value yourself. And in the world in which we live, we use money as a metaphor for value. So if you value yourself, you put a monetary figure on it. Whether you agree with that or not is irrelevant. That's the way the world works. So the problem with the internet, it has reduced the value of everything to nothing. You know, years ago you charged for this. Years ago, I charged you for my time. I said, right, it have been two hours. I want two hours of my day rate. But you don't anymore because the internet's reduced the value. That okay. it's reduced the barriers. But we've talked about adding for an item. Um, yeah. So it's just figure out what you love. Get a piece of paper and a pencil and write it all down. That's where you always start. Yeah. You know, you're the super and I'm not, I'm not suggesting this as in any way, shape or form a suggestion that everyone should do because it's completely irresponsible. But <laughs> Ernest Hemingway used to say the way you write is you write drunk, you edit sober. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're more creative. Yeah? yeah, so I'm not suggesting you should have a drink, but what I'm suggesting, is maybe do something that changes your state to make you more relaxed and creative, yeah? yeah. And when you're in that more relaxed, creative state, get yourself a pen and paper and write everything that's going on in your head down. Because the problem is if you do it in a situation where you go, I've got this subconscious block, I've got to get it out, you get a pen and you get a paper and you go, <laughs> nothing will come. Yeah, because you're tense and it will not hide. And the next thing you know, when you're driving to work or whatever, or walking the dog, your son, all the thoughts will come. And you go, oh, I've got no way of capturing it. Oh, my goodness me. Because you've changed your state. Does that make sense? So you need to do something to change your state. Yeah. Now, I'm not suggesting you have a little tipple, but sometimes that can be the it so, Yeah
2: Yeah.
0: You know, not the tipple as such, but you know, whatever it is that relaxes you. Have a hot bath. I don't know. Listen to some Kenny's
1: <laughs> I go on a shop and I'll get some
0: Stella. <laughs> not Stella is beating your wife up. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, I completely lost my car. Jen's going to get fucking mad. All
1: right, okay, come on, we'll wrap it up there, mate. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, Where, where can my audience find you, and on, and on what platforms? <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you like Facebook, then, um, <laughs> the best place to go. If you like Facebook, then don't come on. Um, it, the best place to find me, to be perfectly honest, is... um. MattCallfield.co.uk. that's that's my website it's got all the information on how you contact me I am on social media and uh, you can find me on Facebook at Facebook slash Matt Caulfield. consultancy I think search consultancy. I'll
1: put the links on anyway uh,
0: and uh, I'm on Twitter but don't use Twitter often because it confuses me um, <laughs> yeah, so you can find me there and if you want more of this in there and rambling advice <laughs> I'm very reasonably priced <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Joel Ingram and I am a certified NLP coach. I help passionate, resourceful and professional people who feel stuck and unfulfilled with aspects of life to rewrite their narrative and chronicle a new, engaging and captivating future. Please subscribe if you found benefit. <laughs> uh Matt, you're awesome, fair play. No worries. I love our interactions.
0: Yeah, we we can do part two in another time in fact Jen my wife has just texted me and said are you still going I
1: <laughs> <laughs> apologise to Jen for me and little Dougie and Dougette
0: yeah and hopefully I hope that you can um, you can edit this down to some reasonable length and take some of the waffle out of it and hopefully it'll be a, a reasonable hour long podcast there's going to be an hour long podcast in there somewhere hasn't there
1: I'm going to split it it's going to be two podcasts right uh, part one part two yeah um so yeah, I will get two weeks out of this, <laughs> <laughs> this one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i look,
1: to it. I've still got more questions to ask you, so I'm looking forward to a return in the future.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Oh, yeah, like so I said, we on. I know there's a lot of repetition in there, so you'll probably be able to take a good chunk of this out. For and, uh, and, you know, and, and get it down to a reasonable length. Whatever you do, you I know. will.
1: Yeah, I'll. Uh, I'll make sure that's gone. <laughs> no worries. <laughs>
0: let me know when you want to do it again and let me know oh, you, if you want me to send you a picture of, have a some new headshots then put it in on Facebook so yeah if you um, could my voice is going now look at that I've talked to
1: <laughs> uh, headshot and uh, is, do you want me to use your bio off your social off your website or
0: yeah you might as well yeah yeah okay don't uh, me, me me like be doing it beforehand I'll give you a quick but if you use the one on LinkedIn LinkedIn you know, that's quite a lot of detail you might want to cut some of it out but that's sort of like be up to date Okay, cool. All right, Thank Thanks you very much, Matt. No worries, good to talk to you. And you. Uh, how do I get out of this? Do I just. <laughs>